It's the Veterans Radio Hour. Proudly supported by McDonald's and their national salute to the U.S. military. Now, stay tuned for the Veterans Radio Hour next on the TRN Talk Radio Network. Tango Charlie Bravo, you're a go for the Veterans Hour. Hi, uh, she'll have a Happy Meal and I'll have the Big Mac. Dad, when will I be old enough for a Big Mac? When you're in college. College. Now, when you register specially marked McDonald's gift certificates at youpromise.com, a portion of the value goes into a YouPromise account for a child's education. So, the more specially marked gift certificates you buy, the more you'll save for college. I want to be a doctor. Hello, gift certificates. Sign up for free and get the details at youpromise.com. We love to see you smile. Welcome, one and all, to the Veterans Radio Hour. It's our tribute to all of those who served our great nation's armed forces, past and present, and their tremendous accounts of heroic duty and bravery. With your host, Brigadier General Dave Grange. And now, coming to you live from our Veterans Center studio, here is General Dave. This month marks the first anniversary of the beginning of combat operations in Afghanistan. The demands on America's armed forces are tremendous, with ongoing missions in over 100 countries today. Over 70,000 guardsmen and reservists are still mobilized for the war against terrorists and countries that support them. 20,000 active duty members are on what's called stop loss. It's a status where that service member is not allowed to terminate their normal duty obligation because of their critical specialty or maybe because of the size of our military. How do we maintain the requirements placed on our armed forces today and into the next several decades? Is it a duty of every American citizen to serve their country somehow in the military or another public service role? Napoleon said his army was so powerful because it was the first based on the principle of the citizen soldier, that everybody had a responsibility to defend the state. Tonight, we're going to discuss the draft. Do we need one or not? Or is there another option, some type of national service obligation like the one Senator McCain proposed? In the studio with us tonight, we have Dr. Charlie Moskos, professor of sociology at Northwestern University, Major General David Harris, the Adjutant General of the State of Illinois, Mr. Roy Dolgas, the Chairman of the Veterans Advisory Council in Chicago. And online from Washington, D.C., we have Dr. Alan Gropman, Professor of Grand Strategy and Mobilization at the Industrial College of the Armed Forces. But first now, I'd like you to listen to Kenny, our senior producer. And if you have a question or a comment for the Veterans Radio Hour, you can email us at veteransradiohour.com or call our hotline directly here to the phone, 866-928-2329. Back to General Dave. The show tonight is dedicated to Sergeant Alvin York, a native of Tennessee. He was drafted in 1917. Trained at Fort Gordon, served with the 328th Infantry Regiment of the 82nd Division. That's the 82nd Division, not 
82nd Airborne Division in those days. He made corporal and then sergeant after his most notable accomplishment on October 8, 1918, in the Argonne Forest in northern France. He killed at least 20 enemy soldiers with his rifle and then pistol, saving his platoon, and then captured many more Germans, earning the Medal of Honor. The French Allied commander called Sergeant York's heroism the greatest accomplished by any soldier of all the armies of Europe. Sergeant York was an American draftee. Tonight, uh... The Veterans Radio Hour proudly brings you This Week in Military History, and now, General Dave. Back in October 1940, the draft went into effect when Secretary of War Henry Stimson drew number 158 from the Lottery Bowl. October 12th, yesterday, but two years ago, was a terrorist attack on the USS Cole in Yemen. And sadly today, Stephen Ambrose, the famous author, died, author of D-Day, Lewis and Clark, Band of Brothers, and many others, who captured parts of America's history and highlighted its heroes to us. He'll truly be missed. That he will. Back to our guest tonight on the subject, a draft or some sort of national service. Do we need it or do we not? We have Dr. Charlie Moscos, professor of sociology at Northwestern University, where he holds the Anderson Chair in the College of Arts and Sciences. He's a graduate of Princeton University, drafted immediately after graduation. Later, he attended the University of California, receiving his PhD. He's the author of many books, to name a few, The American Enlisted Man, The Military, More Than Just a Job. All that can be, can be done about black leadership and racial integration, the Army way. The postmodern military, armed forces after the Cold War, and other books and articles. The Wall Street Journal calls Dr. Moscos the nation's most influential military sociologist. Dr. Moscos traveled to visit combat units in Vietnam, Panama, Saudi Arabia, Somalia, Haiti, Bosnia, and Kosovo. He was appointed by George Bush to the President's Commission on Women in the Military in 1992. He is infamous for the coining the phrase, don't, don't ask, don't tell, a policy on homosexuals in the military cited by President Clinton in 1994. He has been awarded the Army's highest decoration for a civilian, the Distinguished Service Award. To his right flank is Major General David Harris. He's the 35th Adjutant General of the state of Illinois, the senior officer in the chain of command for both the Illinois Army and Air National Guard. It includes 13,500 men and women in uniform. He's a graduate of Georgetown University, has served 30 years in the Guard. He's an infantry officer. He's inducted into the infantry OCS, that's Officer Candidate School, Hall of Fame, this year. Has served 10 years as a member of the Illinois House of Representatives and, uh, and the Illinois Guard Soldiers, responsible for the Illinois Guard Soldiers' largest call-up since the Korean War. And by the way, the state of Illinois had the most soldiers deployed at one time from the National Guard uh, during the war on uh, terrorism. To his right flank is Roy Dolgas, another draftee with us tonight besides Dr. Moscos. All-state basketball player from New Jersey received a scholarship to Loyola University in Chicago, but then, and he can explain this to you, drafted in 1966. He became a military policeman went to Vietnam with the 9th Infantry Division and the 196th Infantry Brigade, discharged in 1968, 
received his uh, degree in business administration after he departed the military. He's on a selective service board and chairman of the Vietnam, or the Veterans, excuse me, the Veterans Advisory Council of Chicago. He's also the president of the uh, Vietnam Veterans of America Chapter 242. And online with us from Washington, D.C. is Dr. Alan Gropman, a professor of Grand Strategy and Mobilization at the Industrial College of the Armed Forces located at Fort McNair, Washington, D.C. He's also the adjunct professor of, of Security Studies at Georgetown University. He served the United States Air Force for 27 years, retiring as a colonel. He has 4,000 flying hours, 670 missions in Vietnam. He was awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross. He's a distinguished graduate of the Air War College. He has a, a doctor's degree in history at Tufts University. He's the author of many books, to name a few, The Big L, American Logistics of World War II, Mobilize in U.S. Industry in World War II, Air Power and Airlift Evacuation of Calm Duck, and the Air Force Integrates, as well as many other publications. So I'd like to go right into the subject tonight and ask uh, Dr. Gropman, do we need a draft or do we not, sir? Uh, no, uh, General Grange, I don't think you do. Not, not in the present situation, anyway. Uh, it's conceivable if you got into another major conflagration like World War II, uh, that would have to be revisited. But we made our numbers uh, last year, uh, last fiscal year, very comfortably. And uh, I'm confident we'll make our numbers this fiscal year confidently. All you have to do is, is pay it. Uh, when you pay it, uh, the uh, the people will uh, sign up. Uh, there are a lot of good reasons why uh, why we don't want to turn to uh, to a draft. Quality of the military today is better than it's ever been. We've never had a better military. We've never had a military with more aptitude. We've never had a military that's come in more disciplined. And and uh, and there are a number of good reasons why uh, a draft is is not the route to take. I know that probably everybody else in your panel will disagree with that. I know that Charlie does. Charlie and I have talked about this and debated this issue, Charlie Moskowitz, uh, many times. Well, let me go to Charlie for a second. We'll get right back to you. Uh, uh, Dr. Charlie Moskos, uh, of course, he's a good friend of yours, but has a 180-degree view. Dr. Moskos? Well, as much as I respect Al's uh, and Gropman's uh, views on security matters, here's where we do depart. Currently, our armed forces are under strength and overstretched. Nobody can deny that. Uh, we have a war on terrorism, perhaps a military uh, you know, conflict with Iraq yet to be determined. But just let's focus on the war on terrorism, which is a reality. I advocate a three-tiered draft. We need a draft for the armed forces. By the way, when you have a draft, you're going to get many more volunteers. And you don't have to pay him as much. Uh, you know, Al Grotman says you got to pay. Well, don't forget the draftee was never paid that much because most draftees were citizen soldiers and went on to their civilian uh, careers. Then you also need, however, a draft for homeland security, uh, airport security, uh, natural disaster control, customs, immigration, border patrol. All of these positions are under strength and are costing an arm and a leg uh, to, to staff. And then there should be a third option for those who find military service uh, against their principles. And interestingly enough, Sergeant York himself came out of, out of a pacifist right. tradition. That's right. And uh, I would think there could be alternative forms of service, uh, working in hospitals, uh, teaching for America, 
uh, Peace Corps, AmeriCorps, uh, environmental work, and, and the rest. So with those three kinds of tiers, you would certainly find a draft very, uh, I think, acceptable. Well, let, let's go. We'll come back to that, Charlie, because I want to just go around the table and then expand on some of these points because there's depth to each of them, if that's okay. And, and I'd like to go to General Harris since he was in Illinois Congress. Is a draft now, if, if one's proposed, politically acceptable? I don't think a uh, draft is politically acceptable. I would draw a distinction between uh, national service and a draft. I think Dr. Gropman hit the nail on the head in terms of uh, the quality of our armed forces today has never been better. Uh, those, those young men and women uh, that we are bringing into the service are some of the most motivated that you will ever find, and we have tremendously, tremendously capable forces because of that. I think you lose some of that motivation if you go to a draft. At the same time, I'd, I'd uh, agree with my friend here to my left, uh, Dr. Moscos, in that some form of national service, perhaps for some other sorts of missions, might be advisable. Uh, I, there is no doubt in my mind that the military is being uh, overstretched. Uh, the commitments are going up. The numbers, uh, by way of end strength, are holding steady. And at some point, something has to give. What's happening, of course, is we're calling on the National Guard and the Reserve more and more and more. Uh, and I think perhaps that's not the uh, the tact we want to continue to take. Well, saying that, let me let me go to Roy Dolgus here for a moment, just to just to get his point of view on a draft or national service or neither. Um, I, I think we need a uh, uh, eventually we'll need a draft in the service. I, I think the country is or the service is missing something when they're not drafting uh, uh, men into the service. Uh, you have a, a, a blend, I think. You have the men who are really dedicated to the service, and, and you have these other gentlemen coming in who didn't really want to go in, but they're going to add something to the service that it, it doesn't have now. And I don't know exactly what that might be, but I think it will hurt, help the service. And also, I think uh, we need a uh, some kind of a draft, too, to uh, educate these people uh, in, in the loyalty of, of this country. Okay, now before we go back to, to our, our, uh, our guest, I'd like to go to the telephone. We have a call in from Mr. Ralph Zumbro. Ralph, are you with us? Yes. Please, do you have a question for the panel here? Well, a question. Or a comment. Uh, a question and a comment. I first went into the military in 1957, volunteer, and I served with both regular Army and U.S., in other words, draftees. And after basic training, you could not tell the difference between the two unless you looked at the serial number. The, uh, the draftee makes a perfectly adequate soldier. And I think we're missing a, a very large bet by not bringing in all levels of society. I, went, I served six years in the, uh, the old system when every male child had a uh, six-year military obligation. I served that out. I was out for four years, and I went back in specifically for Vietnam. When I did go back in, I wound up in charge of a complete Chicago street gang, which had been caught by the police running a very sophisticated chop shop. <laughs> and when I got handed a stack of forms, a foot thick. I, I knew something had happened. And the clerk said, you see those 40 guys over against the wall sitting on the floor with the attitude? 
I said, yes. He said, that's a complete Chicago street gang. They're all yours. Get them down to Fort Hood. <laughs> well, I inserted myself into that gang's chain of command by locating the leader, telling him that you are now in the United States Army, the biggest gang in the world, and I know how it works. I want four squad leaders. We're getting on an airplane in an hour. Eight weeks later, Sergeant Klingerman and I turned out one fine, light infantry platoon. And the point of this is light infantry does not require a college degree in rocket science. There is room for everybody in national service. And there are a lot of children rattling around on the streets today who would be well served by giving by being given two or three years of a structured existence. Okay, let me take it from there, right right from that one. Charlie, response? Well, uh, the response, first of all, we're in the same draft era. I, uh, yeah. I, I might add, too, uh, that, you know, m one of our fellow draftees was uh, Elvis Presley. Uh, can you imagine Eminem, you know, being in the uh, Army uh, today? I hope he would join <laughs> the Illinois <laughs> National Guard. Uh, but on the issue of the quality, the point was very valid made. I, as a matter of fact, I go further. Actually, the dropout rate for a U.S. or draftee in the, in the late 50s was 10 percent. The dropout for a regular Army volunteer was 20 percent. The dropout rate today in the military for all four services is about 35 percent. That is 35 percent of the, those entering the service don't even complete their term, and every one of those is a pain in the organization. Was well, that because budget. of the standards and training, or is it because of the quality the type has changed. Of, of person? The, the quality has changed. Uh -huh. And here in Al Gropen and I will certainly disagree. But let me, let me tell you, in the late 50s, among Army accessions, about approximately 10% had college diplomas. Today, with a much higher educated population than you had 40 or 50 years ago, it's around 1% uh, have, a, have a college diploma. So you can't tell me what we have. Well, you need privileged youth to serve if a country feels that it's going to take casualties. And the reason that the draft lost legitimacy in the Vietnam era was because privileged youth avoided the military service, and that's why the draft didn't have the legitimacy that it had during the Cold War. Now that and point, World War II. and that point about uh, the elite, I'd like to get Al to comment on that. Al could, because that is a significant point that Charlie always brings up. Uh, about the, the privileged youth. Do you have a, a comeback to Charlie on that? Everybody's talking pro-draft. Is that what you want? No, I'm, I'm not saying that. I just want your, your, uh, your opinion on, uh, on uh, what Charlie said about who should, you know, if you have everybody committed. In other words, the privileged youth as well as those that seem to be volunteering. Uh, is that a significant point or not? Well, uh, General Grange, two people are talking to me. Somebody said, just said they're going to put me on hold, and I was responding oh, to him. I'm sorry. To keep no, you, you have the floor, sir. Yeah, I never did hear what Mr. Zimbro said, so so if anybody else calls in, you're going to have to plug him into what... I mean, he must have said something funny because all of you guys were laughing at him, <laughs> or laughing with him. <laughs> with Look, him. With uh, him. we fought the Gulf War with, uh, uh, with an all-volunteer force, and uh, we did very well. The draft had ended 18 years before the uh, before the war. I did pick up two or three clauses or two or three phrases of what Mr. Zimbro said, and and uh, his key argument is that the draft is good for you, like it was some kind of a vitamin pill, and and you usually find out that that's usually the main argument. The draft has never been. Charlie just alluded to the fact that the draft was not equitable during the Vietnam War. 
It certainly wasn't. And it really wasn't equitable in the Cold War period. They took a bigger swipe because a lot of people, a lot of people, a lot of people evaded the draft, but a lot more would have evaded the draft if there was any combat involved. No draft from the Civil War draft on was, uh, was equitable, and especially in the way that it was actually applied. Uh, since we haven't had an equitable draft since, since 1862 in the case of the Confederacy and 1863 in the case of the Union, I'm willing to wager that politically you can't make one uh, that's equitable. Charlie raised the point about money. We pay a guy down in, in, in Texas $25 million a year guaranteed for 10 years to play shortstop, three hours a day, five days a week uh, uh, for five months of the year. If you can pay him $25 million a year for 10 years, we can pay our draftees more or we can pay our enlistees more if we want to. It depends upon what you value. It depends upon what you value. We can pay somebody twenty or thirty or forty thousand dollars a year uh, to go to Afghanistan. The reason that the numbers are tight is the Congress has put an active duty force and a reserve component force at about two point eight million, one point four each. Uh, if they if they asked for more and they were willing to pay it, you would get more people. You would get more people in. Okay, let uh, me let me uh, give Charlie just a, about thirty seconds to respond to that before we go to break. Uh, yes, sir. I think Al and I just uh, read the facts differently about how equitable the draft was. In my Princeton class of 750 men, approximately 450 served uh, in the late 1950s. When you look at my single uh, high school, uh, Albuquerque High School, the number was approximately half of that when you had a cross-section of all classes. But more importantly, uh, on the money issue, during the draft era, a senior NCO made seven times the income of a private. Today, that same senior sergeant makes only two and a half times that of a private. Our un we have overpaid recruits and underpaid career soldiers. Okay, thank you. We'll come back here shortly. Go ahead, Kenny. You're listening to the Veterans Radio Hour, and as we keep growing, you can email us at veteransradiohour.com or call our toll-free number at 800-591-0020 to leave us a message and tell us what your ideas are. Last week, we had 37 countries log on during our new program. We now have a chat room, so if you are listening online, click on the chat room part, and GIM Productions in Naperville will get all plugged in with you and give us the questions. This Veterans Radio Hour is made possible through generous support of individual founders and members, including our newest uh, corporate sponsor, Pabst Blue Ribbon Beer, and, of course, audience participation, help from John Murnane and Carol Murphy. Next week's show is going to be all on veterans' health benefits. We've been able to bring on Congressman Ronnie Shows of Mississippi, who sits on the House Veterans Affairs Committee. You can write to radio stations near you. Tell them to carry this program. We'll give it to them for nothing. They'll have the opportunity to be able to carry this program live as well as on rebroadcast, just a letter to the station near you. And now, we are also at times donating money from our sponsors and this radio station to different veterans organizations. Become a part of the Veterans Radio Hour. At ease, soldier. The Veterans Hour with General Dave will settle in again after a short break break on the Talk Radio Network. The Veterans Hour now returns to full readiness on the TRN Talk Radio Network. Thanks for 
Okay, uh, before I go on to the next uh, part of the program, I'd like to recognize two uh, invitees to the Veterans uh, Radio Center here tonight. These are two individuals that served their country in other ways than, than, than being in the service. They were translators in Bosnia. Uh, in fact, they work with me in Bosnia. And with, with us tonight is Mitch March and Dan Kisich, and we thank them for uh, their duty to their country and being with us uh, tonight in the radio uh, studio. Um, Tonight, uh, our, uh, our valor um, salute is to a First Lieutenant David Weber. Uh, Lieutenant Weber was in the 3rd Reconnaissance Troop of the 3rd Infantry Division, Rock of the Marne, during World War II. On 17 July 1943, during combat operations in Sicily, he led a three-vehicle patrol into the enemy-held territory to locate an isolated Ranger unit. They encountered four enemy tanks, and he was in soft-wheeled vehicles at the time. He was outnumbered, outgunned, but Lieutenant Weber dispersed his vehicles and ordered his men to open fire to stop the enemy with 30 caliber and 50 caliber machine guns. Out of ammunition, after a long fight with three men hit, including himself, seriously wounded, he seized a Thompson machine gun and engaged an enemy tank at 30 yards in the open, killing the crew members, causing it to run into a bridge and then later into a ditch, blocking the road. They continued to engage the other three tanks throughout the night uh, with small arms fire until reinforcements arrived the next morning. We salute our hero, our valor story, First Lieutenant David Weber from the Rock of the Marne, 3rd Infantry Division. Hooah. The Veterans Radio Hour now will salute the active service person of the week, made possible through the support of Paps Blue Ribbon Beer. As they say, PBR me. ASAP, the great taste available at your local retail market, Dave. <laughs> okay, we're going to salute our active uh, service member, which actually is in a U.S. Uh, Air Force National Guard, activated uh, for duty in Saudi Arabia for a three-month tour, and that's senior airman Taya Shram. She is a service tech services technician specializing in food service at the Prince Sultan Air Base during her tour of duty. She's married to Captain Jeff Schramm of the Army National Guard. They both live in Grand Prairies, Texas. Thank you very much for your duty. We appreciate it. We salute you. Hoo-ha. Now we're going to go uh, back to our guests, and I'd like to go back to Roy Dogus. He was a guy that uh, was drafted, and I'd like to ask him why, how it happened, and what he thought about it. Roy? Um, as you know, I was uh, in college, and uh, I maintained straight A's in basketball. <laughs> but uh, I didn't have maintained straight A's <laughs> in my academics, so I was let go. Uh, and a short period after that, I was drafted into the service. And uh, I looked upon that as the uh, greatest experience of my life, uh, being in the service. It made me more of a more mature person. I came out, I went back to school, graduated, and it uh, made me a better person, I think. So the, the service gave you the, the fortitude to pass and get your yes. degree? And we appreciate your service, and, uh, and Roy, there's many uh, American citizens with that same same situation uh, that were drafted. And, you know, I, I get mixed emotions, and I'll, I'll sum it up at the end about draft, no draft, national service. But I can tell you, I want to go back to, to a comment that uh, I believe Ralph uh, Zumbro made earlier in a call-in, and that is that uh, there's a few differences, but, you know, after 30 years of, of having in my command serving with draftees and, and volunteers, uh, once those soldiers are trained, integrated into a unit, I couldn't tell the difference either, to be honest with you. 
uh, all good soldiers, great citizens of the United States of America. At this time, I'd like to, I'd like to go back to, to General Dave, uh, Dave Harris and ask him about if we, if you, not just today, everything we've talked about so far is kind of today. If we have to sustain this fight against terrorists around the world, if we go to war with Iraq and possibly some other regional conflicts, can we sustain the mobilization effort of the Guard and the Reserves, the active service uh, forces that, at the current strength that we have today, a decade, two decades from now? David? I think we can if uh, those uh, guardsmen and reservists are used in their traditional roles, which, uh, as an example for the National Guard, tends to be combat and combat support. Um, if you start using those forces for uh, less demanding tasks, and again, I come back and draw the difference between a draft and national service, if you start using them for less demanding tasks, such as guarding gates and checking IDs, uh, otherwise known as force protection and installation security, and you have those, uh, those soldiers who are not full-time soldiers, but rather are now mobilized for six, eight months or a year, uh, doing tasks which are, they are not trained for under their military occupational specialty, uh, you're not going to get the, uh, the folks to, to uh, sign up again, to extend their, their tours of duty. So we have some real uh, concerns in that regard. But if you're saying, hey, we need these folks for the, uh, for the combat support, for the combat and combat support that they're trained to do, uh, they're going to be there and they're going to be willing to do whatever mission they're given. Well, how many, but what about multiple uh, call-ups? What about their em employers? Uh, these people, 270 days, 180 days, repetitively. And, and I have had uh, I have had soldiers called up for an extended period of time prior to 9/11 of 2001 and post 9/11 of 2001. And I can tell you that there are, the employers have been noticeably different post 9/11 of 2001. Uh, 1,300 Illinois Army National Guardsmen just returned from U.S. Army Europe. Uh, they were there for eight months, and uh, I did not hear a single complaint from any. Uh, employer uh, for that mobilization. About two years ago, we had some soldiers in Saudi Arabia and Kuwait for a fairly lengthy period of time. Uh, we had some real problems, uh, problems the wrong word. We had some concerns with, with employers at that time. Uh, there has been a noticeable shift in the attitude of employers right now. Yeah. And of course, at the same time, the labor market is a little bit different. Yeah. Than but the you know, I think you're right, though. I notice uh, the corporations, uh, the business uh, leadership uh, is taking care of the, a lot of these. Uh, Guard and Reserve call-ups better than it has happened in the past. I know the Tribune Company has a very good policy. I, I, I went over it the other day, and I, I was impressed with the, the detail on how they can take care of the, uh, of the, of the military service member. Uh, I'd like to go back to Charlie Moskos about uh, ask him that same question about sustaining this demand on our military 10, 20 years into the future. It cannot be sustained uh, without some dramatic change in the personnel system. I advocate a draft. There are other ways you can think of it, too, such as short enlistments uh, geared to student benefits. And don't get anybody's federal college age unless he or she does a term of service. That would be, I think, a, a minimal thing. But as the general was uh, uh, saying, that uh, for these jobs like guard duty, I mean, that's perfect for a draftee or a short-term uh, enlistee. And don't forget, too, you know, with all the high-tech that's going on in the world, there are a lot of Beetle Bailey jobs in the military. Anybody who's been in a military unit knows there are many jobs that require what we used to call OJT on the job training, and that what a bright, dedicated person can learn in a matter of days or, or at least a few weeks. So I think uh, we're hiding 
uh, from the big uh, problem. We're not recognizing the elephant in the living room by saying that the present poor structure is adequate. Obviously, it's not. Let me ask you one follow-on question, and I want to I want to go to Dr. Gropman for a response. Two quick answers, please, gentlemen. One is that uh, we, we just talked about the sustain the sustainment here. Now, I've always been taught, I've always read, uh, both there, because I went to the National War College right next door to where uh, ICAP is with Dr. Grotman, but um, I was always taught that an army doesn't go to war, a nation goes to war. Yeah. Without a draft, does a nation go to war? No, a nation doesn't go to war without citizen soldiers doing the fighting. The fact of the matter is, since Vietnam, we have lost totally, uh, you know, less than a thousand people in, in the last uh, 45 years. Uh, in, in terms of combat uh, operations. We have not had a war of, of that kind of magnitude for almost close to a half a century. So this is where you do need a citizen soldier. Okay. Uh, Dr. Grotman, a response quick, please. Yeah, you mean the country didn't go to war in, in the Persian Gulf in 1991? How what many did we lose, Al? Well, I, I know we didn't lose the 300, but what difference does it make? You mean the country didn't go to war? The country did not has not suffered long-term casualties. Well, I understand that, but the country went to war. Look, when you start talking about numbers, the British, with a much smaller population, were able to put, uh, able to get a half a million volunteers to go fight in Flanders Field and elsewhere uh, in Europe because the people in Britain, the men in, in Britain, thought that it was worthwhile. The other thing, the country was worthwhile and worth fighting for. We also have uh, another ace up our sleeve this time. Uh, we have, uh, we're approaching 20% of the service in women now. Uh, taking over many of the functions, uh, since they don't, uh, by law, can't do uh, ground combat, taking over almost all of the combat support and, and combat service support roles and many roles that are uh, in, in the Air Force and other services that are like combat. If you pay the 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 people adequately, then the people will come in. All right, let me we have say, a huge population. Yeah. Population of 285 million. A quick, a very quickie. Uh, in World War One in Flanders Field, the nobility suffered higher casualty rates than the working class did. Sure. Okay. Let me let me uh, break it from there just for just for a minute. Let me let me go to another guest we have on uh, that we all respect very much, Mr. Al Lynch, Medal of Honor winner, recipient with the 1st Cavalry Division in Vietnam. He's now the policy advisor for the, the Illinois uh, Attorney General. And I would like to ask uh, Mr. Al Lynch his feeling on a draft. Sir? Well, I'm, uh, I'm for a universal draft. I think that anybody that uh, graduates from high school, uh, 30 days upon graduation, should spend the next two years in boots. Men, women, and even disabled. You see disabled people skiing down hills and playing tennis and doing all kinds of things. I think that gives us a vested interest in this country. We all have to serve, rich, poor, black, white, Latino, doesn't matter. It gives okay. us the right of citizenship. Well, we're going to come back to you, because I want to talk to you more about this, especially the point about uh, should women be drafted if there's a draft. Uh, it came in on email just a minute ago from one of our listeners, and we'll get back to that in a moment. And now let's recognize the McDonald's Veteran Employee of the Week. Uh, Rick Cool is the McDonald's owner-operator of four restaurants located in Hayes, Russell, and Joaquini, Kansas. Rick served in the Air Force for eight years from 1970 to 78. Rick's most memorial experiences while serving was about his time as an instructor pilot for the T-37, which was at Williams Air Force Base in Chandler, Arizona. Rick was privileged to be honored by two different classes of students as their outstanding instructor pilot. 
Rick is also proud to have helped develop people. Rick said no matter what you are doing, you can make a positive impact in someone's life. He said he had the opportunity to develop a number of pilots, some of whom he are still in the service today as senior officers. As a McDonald's owner and operator, he says that he, he has uh, even more opportunities to develop our employees over the last 22 years to help them grow and become self-sufficient. I am just proud of those, he says, who we have helped earn the position of restaurant manager as I am of those who have gone on to become school teachers, bankers, and owners of their own businesses. When asked how his experience in the Air Force helped him as a McDonald's owner-operator, he answered, as an officer, especially as a pilot, you get involved in leadership and making decisions in quick time, all based on formal training. You certainly do that at McDonald's restaurants, just like in a cockpit. That's how the system is supposed to work under normal conditions and how it works when things become a little hectic. One nice thing with my work at McDonald's is that the stakes are different. No one will lose their life if we make a mistake. In addition to his service in the Air Force, Rick is proud to, have rec to be recognized by McDonald's and his peers for his innovation as an owner and operator. He and his team created mixstate.com, an, um, an employment image and recruiting tool using the Internet to relate to today's workforce. Hi, uh, she'll have a Happy Meal and I'll have the Big Mac. Dad, when will I be old enough for a Big Mac? When you're in college. College. Now, when you register specially marked McDonald's gift certificates at youpromise.com, a portion of the value goes into a YouPromise account for a child's education. So, the more specially marked gift certificates you buy, the more you'll save for college. I want to be a doctor. Hello, gift certificates. Sign up for free and get the details at youpromise.com. We love to see you smile. You're listening to the Veterans Hour on the Talk, 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 Talk Radio Network. The Veterans Hour now returns to duty on the Talk Radio Network. Okay, welcome back. And I want to pick up on that last comment that uh, Al Lynch, the Medal of Honor winner, uh, had made. And with him also we have on the phone from D.C. Dr. Alan Gropman, professor. We have Roy Dogus, the chairman of Veterans Advisory Council here in Chicago, General Harris, the adjutant general of Illinois, and Charlie Moscow's professor of sociology at Northwestern University. And also, going back to Al, Al Lynch, the Medal of Honor winner, you made a comment, if there is a draft, to include women. Why? Equals equal. Not some are more equal than others. You know, uh, women are considered equal by law, except for the draft. No, everybody goes. So you're saying if we have a draft, it's everybody. Everybody, no deferments, equal across the board, rich, poor. College, it doesn't matter. No, no, you don't go college first. You go to the military first for two years. If you serve in the military, if you have to go to a, you know, a battalion or something that, that, that works in a VA hospital or whatever, that's fine, but you do go to the military. Everybody has a vested interest in this country. Okay. Uh, General Harris? Al's absolutely right. Everybody does have a vested interest, and I will tell you that, um, that uh, my experience was that when there is a, a, some sort of universal service, everybody has a shared experience, which I think is important. Politically, though, look at uh, you really have two hurdles you've got to get by. One, you've got to get Congress to reinstitute the draft if you're going to go that direction. And then two, you've got to get Congress to say, okay, we're going to make it apply to women as well as men because the National Selective Service Act right now only applies to men, as we know. So there's, that's, th those are two very big hurdles. Uh, again, I come back and say uh, for filling the ranks of our, our uh, military, if you look what's out there now, you have to do women, all right? 
I don't think that's politically palatable, and I don't think Congress is going to go in that direction. That's why I look at a form of national service other than the military, some sort of uh, as the, 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 the less military kinds of jobs that Charlie was talking about earlier in the program. Okay, and, and I'm going to go right now to, to, to Dr. Uh, Moskos and then to Dr. Gropman. Very quickly, we're going to go back to you again, but real quickly, women in the military. Uh, not to be drafted. Uh, women sh should be drafted for an other national service occupation. Of course, they can volunteer. Volunteer. But if you did have a draft, a la Israel, where women are drafted, though a much smaller percentage serve in Israel than the male rate, uh, they don't have to be drafted, obviously, into the combat arms. I think that would be uh, insane to draft women into the ground combat arms. Okay. And I'd like to ask Dr. Gropman the same question. If there is a draft or some type of yeah, national yeah. S service, your, your opinion on women? Of course. If, if you have universal, we, we never had universal military training, but if you did have it, of course women should be drafted. And then you would decide what roles the women would play based upon their physical and mental aptitude. And uh, uh, that's why, you know, there was, for the longest time, World War II, we limited women to 2% of the force. Never got that number because they uh, they were not allowed to. Uh, to do the more interesting things or achieve rank. Today, uh, the number is, is uh, the percentage is nine times greater because we've opened up practically all the military specialties to women. Okay. I agree with Mr. Lynch. Yes, women, if you're going to draft, draft everybody. Okay, well, this was a great question, and I'll tell you, it just came over the email from, uh, from John uh, Eli from Missouri that asked that question. It's, uh, it's a very good question, and we appreciate it. Now, I'd like to... Uh, mention something to everybody here and as well as the audience and then I'd like to go back for one wrap-up comment from each of our distinguished guests. Uh, first of all, I don't know if many people know that there's an American creed. There is in fact an American creed and uh, it was a result of a nation, na nationwide contest held in 1917. There were 3,000 entries. The winner was a Mr. William Page. He was a descendant of John Page, who had come to America in 1650 and settled in Williamsburg, Virginia. William Page served in Washington as a capital page and later elected clerk of the house. Uh, the commissioner of education from the state of New York came up with the idea to have an American creed. So he and the speaker of the house of representatives awarded William Page as a winner and a creed was put in the congressional record on April 13, 1918. This was during World War I at a time requiring patriotism, maybe somewhat like today. The creed goes like this. I believe in the United States of America as a government of the people, by the people, for the people, whose just powers are derived from the consent of the governed, a democracy in a republic, a sovereign nation of many sovereign states, a perfect union, one and inseparable. Established upon those principles of freedom, equality, justice, and humanity for which American patriots sacrifice their lives and fortunes. I therefore believe it is my duty to my country to love it, to support its constitution, to obey its laws, to respect its flag, and defend it against all enemies. I just wanted to share that with you because to be honest with you, until a few months ago, I did not know there was an American creed, and I love it. Anyway, I'd like to go around now, and please be brief. I'd like to get a, a final comment on your point of view on a draft or national service or no draft. Mr. Or Dr. Gropman, sir. I, I don't uh, believe that we need a draft, uh, and, I, uh, and I don't believe uh, 
I will believe in national service if I trusted every government uh, now and into the future, but I don't know the government into the future. Therefore, I don't want the government to have that kind of control. Okay, Medal of Honor, uh, Al Lynch. I believe we need a draft, and we need it now, and it needs to be universal. Okay, General Harris. Some sort of national service is needed. I do not believe we need a draft to meet our commitments uh, at the present time uh, and don't need to draft people into the military. And, and Charlie Moscos, uh, your point, and um, if it has to be with national service, give us a quick little tease on, 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 on how. The draft should be part of a, of a larger program of national service, including military service, homeland security, and uh, other forms of alternative civilian service. And if we have a draft and we don't need everybody in the youth, we must start drafting at the top of the social ladder. Some people have more of a vested interest in this country. We're not all equal, and who better to serve than those who have the most vested interest? What do you get if you serve? Should you get something if you serve this nation year well, by year or whatever? GI Bill, for example. That's the obvious one. And uh, veterans' uh, preferences and employment. Okay, so if, what about a year of college? For a year of service. Well, that would be the uh, GI Bill type uh, yeah. uh, argument. As yes. a part of the GI Bill. Okay, well, I want to thank everybody with us tonight. Uh, Charlie Moscos, Professor of Sociology at Northwestern, Major General David Harris, the Adjutant General of Illinois, Roy Dolgos, the Chairman of Veterans Advisory Council of Chicago, Al, Al Lynch, Medal of Honor winner, Policy Advisor for Illinois Attorney General, and calling in Dr. Alan Gropman from uh, the Industrial College of, of the Armed Forces. Thank you very much. It was, a, it was a, a great input from all of you, and we really appreciate it. Good Duty show, first, Dave. HUA. Well, thank you, General Dave.